everybody, and welcome to What Would the Smart Party Do? This week, that question is up for negotiation, as we have a guest who's an expert in such things. With me, as always, is my good friend, Baz. Have you got your red lines sorted out, Baz? I've got some non-negotiables in my back pocket, but I won't be doing them all out at the same time. That would be foolish. Good, yeah, don't blow your lot all at once. And, of yeah. course, we've got uh, Matt from Steamforge Games. How are you doing, Matt? And have you got your, uh, your stance ready, your opening gambit? I have my stance ready. I um, I will tell you at some point in time about my boring negotiation training that involved oranges. Yeah, maybe not on this podcast. We'll save that for a, a Patreon-only <laughs> It's already not boring, though, with the citrus fruit. <laughs> and our guest who uh, hit internet fame with a, a story on Twitter about what D&D could teach uh, trade negotiators is our, our good friend of the show, Dmitry Grozabinsky. How are you doing, Dmitry? Um, I am very well. I didn't. I didn't realize I was walking into World Trade Organization level debate. Uh, well, you should always be prepared as a negotiator. That's my uh, feeling on it. I know you're only used to going onto things like Farmers Weekly, where you you know they have a meager million listeners, but now you're in the big times on the, the UK's premier RPG podcast. Well, I got to be honest. If nobody asks me about Brexit for an hour, it'll be the best hour of my life. So, <laughs> oh, tears up notes. Crossing that off. <laughs> we'll think of something else. So, besides teaching people how to negotiate, you are a longtime D and D fan and DM. So, what's it like? Because you're living in Switzerland now, I understand you are from Australia. What's it like being around in different countries and trying to find a D and D group? It's it's hard in Switzerland. Uh, I live in the francophone part of Switzerland and. You know, my French isn't no anywhere near good enough to try to DM, which is all about kind of evoking images and evoking feelings with words. So there's sort of an expat community. I was incredibly lucky here because j- just as I got here and sort of new friends and whatever, um, Critical Role and all of these other things that made the public interest in D&D massively spike uh, and suddenly people were sort of saying, hey, Demetri, you spend a weird amount of time peering at screens. I bet you know what Dungeons & Dragons is like. <laughs> and I'm like, that is an offensive stereotype, and don't make assumptions about my life, and yes, uh, I will go and get my books that I, like, hauled from Australia. And so that's been, that's been interesting, and I've gotten to introduce a bunch of people here to the game, which was sensationally rewarding nervous the first couple of times I did it because these were people who are not gamers in the traditional conception of the word, um, but or but they absolutely loved it and fell into it, and that's, like, the best feeling you can have as a DM, you know, when, when you're sceptical even that they'll like it, but you're hoping they will and they just love it. It's the best feeling in the world. And then I, frankly, you know, as soon as coronavirus hit, I did that thing everybody did, which is... I jumped on Roll20 and I jumped on Reddit's LFG and I sort of said, can I just get five five warm bodies who can tell a good story because I've got a story to tell. That's an interesting approach. Like I think you probably realise from listening to the show, but we're quite a broad church in terms of games we play, so it's not just uh, D&D. Um, so I'm curious that the, the way you phrase that by saying you want to tell a story and I've got a story to tell, that's not necessarily the first thing people jump to with D&D specifically if you know what I mean. So did you, did you phrase it in that way, like telling stories? Because certainly by the way the internet is, sometimes when you phrase things like that, you get an adverse reaction. 
You know, I, I don't find that. And in fact, I, this is my experience only, but I find that when you talk to a lot of other people who are passionate about D&D, but perhaps haven't thought about as much how to bring people into the hobby, then you talk to them about how they, you watch them talk about it to other people and they will focus like intensely on the combat or like tell some, some anecdote that's rambling or they'll go into the rules. And, and like fundamentally, apart from fourth edition, which I played with my friends who are like hardcore turn-based RPG min-max gamers and they played it like a hardcore board game. I mean, there was some role-playing in there, but they wanted they wanted to design immaculately complex characters that squeezed every inch out of it and then have every fight basically be a puzzle using their skills to, to defeat something that's really difficult and basically to play it like combat chess. Apart from that addition, which suited those guys really well, but doesn't, I think, wasn't necessarily super representative of most of D&D or, or how, how I play D&D. Mostly the way I communicate to people is like, we're all going to get together and we're going to tell a story. Um, and we're all going to collect, you're all going to collectively play through a story that I tell with your input. And there are these rules that will kind of help us uh, give you agency in the story and help put in a little bit of structure about when you try to do things. But really it's about me telling you where you are and you telling me where you want to, what you want to do and us building a world and a story together. Um, and for the people that I've pitched it to kind of really got that and that's the attitude they went into it with. But again, I wasn't, when I'm talking like that, I'm not pitching hardcore, like, you know, people who, who played 10,000 hours of Diablo 2 because they wanted to try every single possible combination of, uh, of skills for every class. Um, I'm pitching people who are a little bit newer to gaming. Um, and who want more of that social experience or sure. who just want to experience it. It's interesting. The, um, I'm picking up perhaps on, on the degree of nuance in the way that you framed that um, because you definitely framed that as, as very much a transactional piece where you, you set something up, you then ask for their actions, and then you're going to look to share with them how the world reacts to that and in doing so set them up for the next piece. Is that, is that something that you think you've honed from your day job? Or is that just the way that you've always run D and D? Because it's quite open. It's quite a nice open way of describing how D and D should work. Because you are really creating an open environment for the players to riff into. Which you know we've all played with those refs who go to the other extreme, and it's very it's quite closed. You know you're sort of stuck in a box canyon, and you're very limited on what your choices are. I mean, I've I've been DMing a lot longer than I've been trade negotiating because nobody let me negotiate trade when I was 12. Um, and, and I asked. I mean, this is the Australian government thing. Uh, I would have been great. Easy to bribe at the time, but great. I tend to... Something that negotiation, at least in the international setting, teaches you is that... The dynamics of it, the set piece of it, you sitting across the table from somebody else, creates an illusory dynamic in the sense that it feels like that you are against the other side and that is the ball game. When in fact, the first thing I teach negotiators pretty much everywhere, but especially government negotiators, like you know, the DIT or whatever, 
is actually the people across the table from you are the only ones on earth who get promoted for the exact same thing you do and yelled at for the exact same thing you do, which is getting a deal that works for both sides, not making any progress on the deal that works on both sides. Whereas everybody else in their system that they will have to go to for permission has a different key performing indicator. And so, but when you sit down in a negotiating room, it really does feel like it's you against them. I think D&D has suffers from the exact same thing. You're literally sit, seated behind a wall that Mexico paid for between you and the players, and you are throwing challenges at them and problems at them. I mean, in, in most in most games, I don't want to completely spread out, but in most cases, you are telling a story. A story has to have difficulty and challenges. You're presenting them with challenges, and they are overcoming your challenges. And so it can feel like when they find a creative way around the fight you designed, when they exploit a rule, when you know the monk stunning strikes four times in a row, and you're the minion you spent hours designing just stands there um, getting pummeled to death. It can feel like adversarial, like you're losing. But as soon as you allow yourself to enter into that mindset, you've kind of, you, you begin ruining it for yourself and for them. And inevitably it creeps into your narration, it creeps into your rules. I'm, I mean, lots of people DM in lots of different ways and depends on their group. I tend to, when I DM, I'm all about like mo uh, epic moments of awesome, as I think the guy who writes the Dresden Files calls them. You know, I, I try to give my players this feeling that they are special and unique when they do something special and cool and unique. And often that means bending the rules or just frankly ignoring them um, if that's what makes that moment great because I'm there really to make sure that four people, four, five, six people have a good time because they've lent me their time. Um, and, and in exchange for that, I get the joy of having effectively created and curated an experience that entertains you know, in my case, six fully, six adult professionals who could be doing anything that evening, but choose to spend it in my world. Mm -hmm. I mean, Baz, you, you describe it as um, play it or run it like you stole it, don't you? Yeah, well, I stole that, which is ironic. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't think it was my statement in the beginning, but yeah, uh, especially applicable to, to one shots, but, but any game where you're, you're dealing with the imagination, you know, why not do something outrageous? Because no one's going to get hurt. It's one of the few, you know, it's one of the few arenas where you can feel a genuine sense of risk, even though there clearly is absolutely no physical risk whatsoever. Mm. Maybe to your mental health long term, <laughs> but you know, you can do things that you can't do in real world, and that that goes all the way back to like you know the satanic panic back in the day, doesn't it? So, like, oh my goodness, these people are casting spells. Well, no, clearly we're not, but it's fun to imagine mm. you can. <laughs> There's an interesting um, thought that occurs to me because. Um, I'm playing, uh, Baz is running a game on Mondays for, for our kind of, actually our, our local physical group, mm -hmm. even though we're currently all on Roll20. I'm playing a, a wizard in that game. It's classic D&D. I quite like taking spells and trying to use them to break the system. So uh, I do like cantrips. I do like trying to find imaginative ways of doing it. And it's interesting the way you say it, because sometimes I am sitting there and I already have worked out the combo that I'm doing. I'm now trying to work out when the best time to actually deliver that combo. I definitely don't want to tell Baz about it, even, <laughs> even though we're not being adversarial, because I kind of want to surprise him. But in a way, I also don't want him to realize what I'm secretly up to. 
<laughs> and then I can kind of go, jazz hands, look at this awesome bit where I misty step on top of the dragon and then thunder step away and the dragon kind of explodes in a, in a glorious hail of, you know, icy flesh. And I wonder if that's me tapping into that kind of feeling, even though I wouldn't possibly describe myself as being adversarial towards the GM in any way, shape or form. I don't think, I mean, in a way, I think that helps Baz in some ways, I would guess, because if, when I'm controlling NPCs, I'm trying to act the way they would, I'm trying to predict how they would act given who, what they are, or who they are, and the situation that they're in. And so I am doing my utmost to try to kind of shut out what I know about the rules, when I'm like, okay, we've got a pack of hobgoblins, what do I know about hobgoblins, discipline, yada, yada this is what they're seeing, okay, what does the Hobgoblin Sergeant do? If you introduce into that, into my mind, a sense of prescience, like I'm already trying to ignore the fact that I know that you can cast Fireball. And I'm trying to kind of make the calculation of like, right, do they know that Matt's, can they recognise that Matt's a dude in a pointy hat with a staff and that often means like area of attacks and, you know, if his hands are already smeared with back one, run, you know, scatter. Do they, do they have that knowledge? Do they not have that knowledge? If you sit there and you go, listen, two initiatives from now, I'm dropping, I'm dropping this combo, then I, as the DM, I'm sitting there going, right, well, if I, almost anything I do now will be looked at through the lens of am I reacting to the foreknowledge Mm. Am I deliberately not reacting to the foreknowledge? Like, am I just warping <laughs> them into it, even though I had planned to scatter them? But mm. now if you've told me you're going to cast Fireball, I was planning to scatter my Hobgoblins anyway because I recognize your pointy hat. But now if I scatter the Hobgoblins, you're going to be like, bro, what the hell? Mm. This, isn't, this isn't a chess game. Like, what are you doing? Why aren't you letting me be cool? Um, and, and you know, like that kind of, especially when you're talking about hyper-specific things, you put the DM into a situation where they're forced to like choose between metagaming and like deliberately not metagaming in a way that's yeah. Metagaming. I remember seeing an interesting um, Twitter thread about um, there's a there's a thing in Dogs in the Vineyard uh, that talks about how to frame a scene um, to give players additional knowledge, but their characters don't have it. So the example is you trudge across the field. Uh, completely unaware of the bandits hiding in the woods to your right. Okay, and and it's kind of cool, right? To me, that sounds exciting, and I'm pretty sure I could quite happily um, carry on role-playing it. But we all have players, or we all know of players, who would be like, I'm going to accidentally drop my staff in the direction of the wood and make a perception check as I look up, you know, and and try. And so we all know players who, who would be desperately trying to find a way of fudging a, a perception check of the wood and not let the ambush happen and go, oh, my God, we've been surprised. There's a great webcomic called uh, Jones, Jones on the Playground, and it's either the first or second episode <laughs> of that, and all the little stick figures are walking to the dungeon, and then the, the rogue says, wait, I think I failed a perception check. And, like The next panel is loads of like, goblins all around him and stuff, and it's that kind of thing with a separating player from in-character knowledge and whether your players can just go with it, which I think... Most of us can, but yeah, it is, it, yeah, judging your audience as a GM is quite often something that you have to do as well, and what they're going to do. But things like Apocalypse World yeah. have treating, you know, put your your fans, be fans of the characters, and put your NPCs in the, in the crosshairs, so you're kind of waiting for your own guys to die, and it's doing it in a way that prevents some um, 
prevents the adversarial nature, but you want the very similitude of that, right? You want to be seen to be playing hard so that when the characters are faced with an army of hobgoblins, it feels like the hobgoblins are trying hard to win, even if you're not necessarily, you know, cheating your way through as a DM sort of thing. But as long as there's trust between DM and players, I think that's fine. One thing I've done more and more now is, is you mentioned uh, DM um, cheating his way or GM fiat. I, all my dice have rolled out in front of the screen. It, like everything, there's no secret rolls at all. And it's much more kind of hardcore as a result. It, like, um, I was uh, running a game on, on Sunday and, and I, I rolled three criticals in a row and they were out on the table and it suddenly turns the dynamic of the combat, of, as you would imagine. But yeah, it, it, it definitely, not having that plot armor really makes a player feel slightly, slightly more vulnerable. Uh, I miswrote a macro in Roll20, and instead of whispering to GM, it um, it just broadcast it. Nice. Like, it just broadcast the attack. And it just so happened, I mean, these, are, these were, I think, level one characters at the time. And they basically got backstabbed for something like 27 damage. <laughs> sort of happened in the... Uh, have, like, it, it didn't go... Because if it had gone into my screen, I'm like, well, that's not fun. Like getting getting insta give, but it was actually it was just like it was there, and so I, I click it and I hear four people go, "Oh, what the fuck!" I'm like, "Oh crap, <laughs> that did not that did not go well." Here's another little uh, sneaky thing that you can do, um, and I do do this occasionally. Log into Roll Twenty, like let's say you're playing at eight o'clock on a Sunday night. Log into Twenty about four o'clock in the afternoon. Find a, a creature that fits the current location they're in that's about three or four challenge ratings above what they are, roll a couple of attacks with them, and then log out. Yeah. And then when you log into your session, everyone's kind of sitting there going, right, so Frost Giants, right? We're, we're only level three. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. I was just trying some stuff out. And then they're constantly looking around for Frost Giants. Lockdown <laughs> tactics. Yeah. GMing advice has changed in just two months. <laughs> yeah, it has. <laughs> I like that we were all like, listen, it's not an adversarial process. You're in it with the players. And then three minutes later, you're like, right, here's four ways to mess with their hands. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah. not adversarial, though, is it? Just messing with them. It didn't get enhanced the experience, I think. I think it's competitive. I think it's quite nice to be competitive, as in you're all trying to outdo each other, as opposed to do over each other. Mm. You know, you're all trying to climb on each other's shoulders to reach an, another point of awesome and like steal the awesome before somebody else does. You're not trying to take away anything from anybody. <laughs> well, I like the thing where, um, like, you've got, I don't know, some evil wizard and the players have fought their way through to him and they, they're like going to defeat him. It becomes obvious. And he just starts smashing all his magical potions and stuff and like throwing his rod down the well and, you know, like all the gear that they were going to get off him. You know, like, he sees the end coming. He's like, well, out of spite, I'm going to destroy it all. That becomes a good race against time to kind of get stuff off him before he can <laughs> teleport it away to someone. But that's that's a kind of like, <laughs> like they didn't have the things in the first place, so you've just shown them and taken away kind of things. So it's a it's, it's sort of playing with the players, like you say, rather than trying to just like make them have an unfun time or deliberately kill them because you can. Because GMs have always got bigger elephants. If you want to, you can have the two hundred hug goblins turn yeah. up, but that's not fun for anyone. No, definitely not. The one, the one point I make to 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 Baz's to Baz's point about having them kind of compete for epic moments of awesome is I don't know maybe this is because I've often DM'd for a mix of experienced and inexperienced players, but what I found is especially out of combat where you don't have initiative order, what mm. you often get is 
there's the one player who like maybe has been playing D&D for a while or just just a hugely enthusiastic and energetic person and they have 23 ideas for what their character would do and it's like if you if you let if you let them the entire game will be this person's endless stream of like actions that they take in sequence because by the time you finish executing one they've got like three more ideas and you've got the quieter members who haven't had especially ones that either don't have a character that's as ridiculous because when you have a character that's really flamboyant and like has a really is almost like campy or is a very much a like method acting thing then often it's actually quite easy to come up with zany stuff they would do all the time Mm -hmm. if you've got more of like a normal person who also happens to be a sorcerer um, who like, you know, have, may have a backstory, but a backstory that didn't turn them into a sociopath clown, then they're just sitting there going like... Um, and so I, I have found myself literally just going like, I'm going to have to stop you. Like, fantastic, <laughs> love it. But can can Amy, like, does Amy want to do anything? Because she's been sitting here for 20 minutes. You definitely got to share the spotlight time. And that's one of the things I've probably mentioned that of how the game has developed over the years is traditionally that's been like the DM role, like that you become social secretary. If the problem is up to the DM to have a quiet word with the problem player and you've got to equally divvy up the time and you've got like, there's all these things that are nothing to do with the game, but as GM, you're kind of seen as the person who's in charge of this social interaction. So you've got to like negotiate all for everything, everybody. And I think, Generally, these days, game is getting more towards it's up to everybody at the table to bring fun and to police each other and to say nice things. So um, that thing like sharing spotlight time, that's something that anybody should be able to bring up. But yeah, definitely as DM, if no one else is doing it, like no one should feel bad about going, Matt, put yourself on mute for five minutes so you haven't shut up yet. Like, you know, let other people have a go. Actually, um, on on that note, um, I think they're sharing the spotlight, but then I also think there's proactively looking to share the spotlight. And there's something Baz True. and I chat about a lot, which yeah, yeah, yeah. is, we, you know, we, we have a nice group of guys. We've known each other for quite some time and we have brilliant time. But there are a couple of the guys who are just really happy to sit there and say nothing. And they just want to go along with it. When it comes to roll for initiative, they're cool. They know their attacks. They know their shizzle that they've got to do. But... You stick them in front of a, an orc chieftain who's demanded to know why that you know he shouldn't chop their heads off, and they're like a rabbit in the headlights. And that's why you need like a, a, a gobshite like me who's quite happy to take control of that kind of situation. But I need to be mindful that I can get carried away, and I need to try and feed off and create situations where I'm I'm helping Baz, who's running the game, pull these characters in as well, almost like I'm co-refing with him, even though I'm a player. So, and I think the more of those people you've got around the table, if you've got five of those people around the table plus the ref, well, you're in dreamland because everyone's trying to pull everyone into the game. That's, that's you know, perfect storm. But uh, so, yeah, I think proactive sharing of, of spotlights is an important distinction. I think one thing that's happened in terms of expectations as a result of streams is people watch I mean, things like Critical Role, things like, um, you know, Critical Bard's Party, all of these parties that feature a lot of people who do D&D for a living um, or who are professional improvisers and all that kind of thing. And the community has been really good at being like, your DM's not going to be Matt Mercer or Matt Mm. Coleman. Like, just, you know, keep in mind, lower your expectations in that regard, 
And and so people, I think, have a healthy appreciation for why their DM is not suddenly breaking into 23 accents or doing, like, audio realistic null sounds. But what people, I think, are surprised by sometimes after watching a lot of streams is they get to a table and they expect to be, they kind of expect the banter between the characters to be the way it is on a stream show. Um, and, and that's actually, that's incredibly hard to do. Mm-hmm. Incredibly hard to recreate. Even even among people who know each other, let alone strangers, even among people who've done their homework, who know their characters. Um, so it's, it's, it's something you really have to proactively work at. And often you do have to you know, have a quiet word with a couple of the more confident role players and say, listen, next session, can you make a special effort? You know, at some point, have your character turn around to one of the others and say something. Um, because an interaction within the party often feels less risky than, you know, when that non-chieftain situation is happening, they're sitting there going, like, better let Matt handle it because we could all die here. But if it's Matt's character asking it, like, it's, if it's Cam and Matt's just like, so what's going on with you? That's potentially an easier on-ramp, I think, into roleplay and into that kind of inter-party stuff that actually, I think, you know, you look at all of the, uh, you look at all of the CRPGs that get well reviewed, every single one of them, the top comment everybody makes, best thing was party banter. Baldur's Gate 2, uh, why Baldur's Gate 2 was, is a classic and Icewind Dale is merely good. Because in Baldur's Gate 2, every one of your characters was unique and had amazing inter-party interactions and chatter with not just you, but with one another. In Icewind Dale, you created your own party and they were effectively just, it was like if if you had six extra abilities, like they were deployable things you hit people with. I think one of the things that can be hard to break, certainly for older role players who are just used to it, that they direct everything at the DM, is to get them used to saying things to other players just generally. So what are you doing? Well, I'm going to ask the thief to do this. It's like, why don't you actually ask the thief players out there? Like, why are you telling me? Tell him. Like, I, don't... I tell everybody what you just told me. Right. <laughs> do you know, that's one of my personal bugbears. I, I really hate that. And I don't really, I think it's irrational. But it's like, <laughs> the out goes or the road goes off, find something. And then it's like, all right, well, I'll just tell everyone that. And you're like, I understand why you're saying that. But wouldn't it be cool to hear it in your words, how you've interpreted it and give it your yeah. own character's lens on it? Just in case you kind of slightly distort it. You know, yeah. for accidentally or on purpose. I, 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 yeah, I just tell them. Okay. I thought this was just a British thing, to be honest. So I was going to be interested to find out what Dimitri said because I, I run the D for school kids as well. I've got a party of ten kids at the moment who are all ten years old, and I've hit on this really interesting initiative system in my classroom. It's called Put Your Hand Up, and it seems to work really, really well. They're quite used to it um, because there's no way you can do it with dice and stuff, but but they are absolutely drilled on taking turns, putting your hand up. And obviously there are some kids who put their hand up more than others. And as teachers, you're trained to share the spotlight, pull people out of each other, that kind of thing, you know. Um, but it is interesting that when their hand is up and it's their turn, they don't address anybody else in the class but the teacher. There's no way they put their hand up and go, can I just ask Sophie over there what, what she thinks she's doing? And you, you get that thing where Sophie's doing something mental. And you go, is anybody going to, say anything about what Sophie's doing 
try and maybe stop what Sophie's doing, applaud what Sophie's doing. I don't mind what you're doing, but you're all sitting there in silence watching this unfold. And I think six of you are going to die in a minute because of what she's doing. But you seem to be letting, you're letting, you're sleepwalking through this <laughs> because they just don't want to talk to another character. And, and you can kind of provoke them into maybe saying something to you. And then you have to be like the butler and deliver the threat back to Sophie. <laughs> They're not going to do it themselves. I, I don't know if that's a I don't know if that's a British thing. I mean, my <laughs> I mean, God, given what I do for a living now, no British thing would surprise me. Um, <laughs> but one one interest one really interesting piece of feedback that struck me from some of the the players that I introduced was they came back after one of the games and said, "What uh, after so I, they they played a couple of games." Uh, with a group of us, and then they started listening to, to, I think, Critical Role. And the feedback was, what I love about Critical Role is that they are, the players are not attempting ye old English mm. classic accents. They, are, they basically talk like normal people. Mm -hmm. They use modern language. You know, they don't refer to toaster ovens, but they speak like we do maybe with a voice because they're voice actors. But fundamentally, it is past the salt. It's not pretty good, sir. The salt, if you would, <laughs> which is, and they're like, that was the thing that really put them off interacting. That's what put them off some of the sessions. And that's what put them off interacting with one another. Because it's just like, I don't want to conduct a conversation. In, mm. there, there is no reason characters would speak this way. D&D &D is not set in the 17th century, like, uh, at the World Theatre. Like, it's, there's no reason that characters would necessarily do this. But I think there is assumption, and I think this comes back to a whole bunch of assumptions people have about D&D, including some of its players, that it has to be done a certain way, and that way is very, like everybody speaks like bad Lord of the Rings characters. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the things that puts off some, some players is that they don't know, they're not comfortable even pretending to speak that way. I don't think too many people are comfortable speaking that way anyway, but they're not comfortable even pretending and they don't want to have interactions with people who are kind of doing camp Shakespeare. I think one of the things that's helped get people into it is critical role just because like whenever I discuss role playing with any friends or family or anything, no one could conceptualize what it was, no matter how I phrased it. Like it's your own movie and you're the star or whatever. However, I try to explain it to someone until you do it, people couldn't get their heads around what it is I did every week. They just couldn't understand. But having a YouTube channel and a Twitch that does that, where they can sit down and watch some people do it and go, "All oh, right, is that what you do?" That just normalizes it, even though. Arguably, the D&D &D player on Critical Role, for example, isn't very strictly D&D, &D, and they do very little actual D&D &D stuff, as perhaps most people do around a kitchen table, for example. But it has helped normalise it and give people an access point. What's slightly worrying, I think, is something you touched on earlier, that people feel they've got to be Matt Mercer then to run D&D, &D, rather than, you know, it's, it's almost like watching the Premier League and then being worried about playing football in the park. It's like, you, you know, you've got a there's different, you know, Everyone, the whole point of role playing is that you do it among your friends and you do it to your level and how you want to play, and it can be completely different than anything you've seen on Twitch or how somebody else plays down the street. Well, it's down. It's, it's style of game as well, isn't it? Because if you if you 
got to play with the critical role players, uh, the critical role team, I know, Gaz, it will drive you nuts. Oh, yeah. I'll be trying to get out of it all the time. Yeah, the style of the game. Yeah, it'll drive you insane. Um, so, we, you know, you prefer a, a higher action, more game-style game, right? We were talking about this last night. And, um, you know, so you have got to find the horse for the course. And, and Critical Role is, is a brilliant way of kind of, you know, it's a high tide that's rising all boats, but not all boats need to be shaped like Critical Role. You need to find the game and make it play the way you want to play it. And if you've got a player who doesn't want to role play and put a silly voice on or even change the cadence of their voice, it, I, I would always encourage that player to speak about their character in third person then. You know, what does your character do? Oh, my character speaks really politely to the guard to try and persuade him. All right, cool, make me a role. It's slowly but surely they'll get into the swing of it if the rest of the table is doing it and having fun doing it. And if the rest of the table isn't doing it or, and or having fun with it, well, then everyone will just talk in third person and the game will still progress along and you'll find your own level. I'm a big fan of groups finding their own style and finding their own level. I've encountered quite a lot of people recently who um, are RPG curious, but they ask me if they have to dress up um, <laughs> because I think streaming has perhaps given the impression that you do. And, and I say, no, you don't have to. And they look disappointed. I was going to say, so, are, they, are they hoping <laughs> to dress up? <laughs> yes. So like, I went through the entire 80s, 90s and 2000s thinking, oh, God, everyone thinks that, you know, role play is like, you know, the other kind of role play with the straps and the buckles and stuff. And uh, so I never, so I was always like leery of mentioning it because I didn't want to put people off. Turns out that doesn't put people off. They want to put on a hat and have a big feather in it. I don't know if you noticed, Baz, but Fifty Shades of Grey sold 50 billion copies. Yeah, I noticed. And there may be some crossover, which I didn't think would be there, but maybe it is. Um, I think to, to, to Gaz's point about Matt Mercer, I, I mean, it's really interesting that Baz plays with 10-year-olds because my one observation is that D&D... Is is a game for mature people, not necessarily old like older people, but to, to have fun at a table, there needs to be at least a degree of maturity where you can still be silly but respect other people. And anybody who shows up at like a community game organized by somebody with a day job and comes into it and is like, what the hell, you're not Matt Mercer is probably going to end up ruining your game in some other way. Had they even never heard of, of Critical Role, they're, they're, they're going to cause you they're going to cause you problems. I really love that line of, like, I'll be Matt Mercer when you can be Liam O'Brien. Like, <laughs> when you play like Liam O'Brien, when you are Caleb, I will be Matt. <laughs> uh, until then, uh, you know, bear with me as I muddle through and do my very best. You can have a complete refund if you don't like it. <laughs> yeah. I think part of my point, what I, was, what I was trying to say, probably execute it quite badly, is that it's people playing with their friends and and holding themselves to an, uh, an unrealistic standard rather than someone coming along and saying you should be mad. But rather it's just like someone thinking as a first-time DM, they've got to do all these kind of voices and be a lot more than they necessarily have to be the first time they play D&D. Oh, yeah. What people don't realise is that the ratio of being uh of dms to players makes you it's it's the closest most geeks will ever come to being super attractive out there in the romantic marketplace where you can just like if you're just like hey i'll run a game that you know post on reddit lfg right now by the end of this recording you will have 26 applications for your one (laughs) slot in the party 
like every time and and your application can be like misspelled like i run game good and like 47 <laughs> people will send you like six six page character backstories they've written exclusively for you because people just want to play DD and they are so grateful that someone's willing to build or run a world for them rather than yeah, God, it's it's like being that, a, that sounds like a um a brilliant way of crowdsourcing a load of NPCs. I'm not sure if that's morally <laughs> good though, is it? That's just... <laughs> Did you come in here for three minutes? Well, actually, there's a there's a podcast, there's a UK podcast uh, that's the that does the campaign um, that's that's all about like a party running for office that crowdsources voices that way. They would just go that's... out on Twitter and go, "We want NPC recordings so that the DM's not doing them all." And then they just get a whole bunch of people on the internet to send them Brilliant. little recordings of a script. And then that's they just plug that into the thing and they play it at the right time. So it's not the DM having to do 80,000 voices a week. Amazing. That's pretty good. So a, a reference to the top of the show, and I know you don't want to talk about your day job, but at a one point you did kind of mention um, or, or put up five things that trading RTSs could learn from D&D. I think previously on the show we've talked, like Baz has talked about how D&D can inform being a skill teacher and stuff like that. So what are the lessons you think that you managed to take away? I appreciate some of it may have been a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but how do you think the game informs a real-life vocation? So we've already kind of covered off on the idea of breaking down the adversarial. So that that's a really big one. Um, another one is, it goes beyond negotiation, but I think it's a lot about life, is that most humans respond best to stories. And rather than when you, it's one thing to put a bunch of facts forward, but when you can uh, structure them in a narrative that makes sense and that is compelling, that often swings the other side more than a simple recitation of cold hard facts and statistics. So learning to weave a narrative from a fairly limited number of set of data points that resonates with the other side. Um, and that kind of brings us to one one thing that you always teach negotiators is why you want something is useful context for the other side. It explains why you're in the room at all. It explains why you're making the request you make. But it's not compelling, right? Why you want a raise from your boss is vaguely interesting to them, and it explains why you're bothering them, but it's not compelling. Fundamentally, you have to be about really get into their shoes, understand what motivates them, understand what are their fears and what are their hopes and what they're hoping from you and from this interaction, and craft your, your message so that those points are the ones that resonate. And in D&D, you basically have to do the same kind of thing. If you as a DM have like, this is, I have an exact story I want to tell in an exact way, and I'm going to tell it the exact same way, regardless of the five people sitting across the table, where they are they are five hardcore role players who are there to like have romances with one another or like really get into the politics or I'm with five people who want to play combat chess with D&D rules and you just like nope I've got my I got my thing and I'm just doesn't matter what you want this is what I'm doing you're going to create a terrible experience for both sides because they're going to be like this is bad and boring and you're going to be like why do you keep trying to shoehorn like interpersonal drama into my blood splattered hack and slash kind of you know tomb of eternal horrors 
I don't like that we didn't want to return horrors. We wanted to like talk to each other and build stories against ourselves. So, so a lot of things is about this like concept of strategic empathy. It's really figure out what motivates them and then craft your messages and craft your play style in a way that resonates specifically with your plays. And then the the last the last one I made, and I think this really resonates with DD, though thankfully things like critical role have taken it off our shoulders. I got into like trade communication fairly recently, and I've been able to build the profile I've been able to build really because there were at the time, there's a lot more now, but there were at the time very few people who were talking about this stuff in a deliberately accessible way. Most people were experts in their field and want and communicated in a way that was designed to communicate to other experts, which is completely fine because that was their, their day job. But something I thought about D&D is, and this comes back to that point we were discussing earlier about listening to someone who is passionate about D&D, who loves it, but has never stopped to kind of pull themselves out of their body and listen to themselves describe D&D as if they didn't know what it is. It's, you know, like you, you get the same thing sometimes with kids. When kids will be describing like a video game and it's something they're super excited about, but they don't make any effort to wield a like cohesive narrative or explain any of the nouns they're using. And it's just kind of like, and then Minecrafted the rock and then there was a thingy and you're like. I, re- I remember um, just on that, um, I remember I was, uh, I was actually in Canberra um, at CanCon uh, doing some Gilball demos and, and hanging out with the Gil- Gilball community down there. And this guy came up and he said, Matt, would you mind giving my girlfriend a demo? I'm like, sure, dude. I, you know, I'll give anyone a demo. And um, so I sat down. And one of the first things I do whenever I give someone a demo is try and find what other games you play and this that, and the other. And she kind of really didn't play very much at all. So I'm like, all right, no problem. I'll start with the basics. So we talked about you know, how to move the models and what they were there for. And then um, I just sort of um, said, and the melee range on this model is like two inches. And she was like, well, what's a melee range? And I'm like, oh, wow, yeah, you literally don't know anything. <laughs> and, like, even something like a melee range is so, like, it's, it's just Grand. part of my vernacular. But yeah. it's, like, to someone who's never heard that, it's like, I don't even know what you're talking about there. Yeah. yeah. If, you, if you want to see something edifying, watch a non-gamer, somebody who hasn't grown up playing games, watch them try to move a World of Warcraft character for the first sort of five hours and then play. Because I've been, I've, been, like, I've been playing games forever, you know, since Counter-Strike version, like 0.1 or whatever. The WASD and the mouse may as well be extensions of my hand. I don't need any game I sit down. They all have the same control scheme. I can make that character do anything without thinking about it. Watching, watching my partner do it for the first time, and they're, they're doing that thing that I do when I pick up controller, which is the character like walk into a wall, like slowly pivoting because they don't have those muscle movement in that reflex. Yep. And when you take it to one level of abstraction, the exact same thing comes with thinking about gaming systems, thinking about rules. Even vastly different gaming systems, at the end of the day, there is a structured way you think about gaming. It turns like the action economy, there's, ver- there's versions of the action economy in, in heaps of games. Things like turn order, melee versus ranged. I mean, you know, we've all been ripping off Gygax over and over for like 40 years. Um, and, and even really innovative systems still like by the time you've played 50 games, the 51st game, 
you read the rules once and you're like, yeah, I see, I see how this works. I see the, the way they've balanced this. I see how they've empowered me versus how they've limited me. Cool. I can, when I play board games with my friends who don't play games as much as I do, I inevitably end up being the one who's kind of in charge of remembering all the rules and sort of reminding everyone because it's just like, it just feels comfortable to me. I have muscle memory and not realizing that people don't is I think a big issue, but then also I think being, being overexcited and not realizing how to tell a story about the game is a problem, but then also, and this is the much darker side of it is the uh, creating hierarchies of elitism and using you using game knowledge and, and gatekeeping gatekeeping yeah games as a way of well i mean god for, for, for some people it's just like reliving high school but like you know refighting all those battles you never got to fight in high school um to, to, to really make a juvenile but that's kind of what it feels like right where you're like ah okay now i am the the alpha and the omega um, and if you are, and I will use the fact that I have memorized the player's handbook to lord it over those lesser mortals who have not and establish a hierarchy whereby if you didn't play second edition, you don't know what Thacko is, you, you can't possibly be a real gamer or you can't possibly kind of, I will scoff at everything that comes out of your mouth. Um, and it's the most insanely self-defeating thing I've ever seen in my life because for a lot of these people, it's just like every other conversation you've had is about how you wish more people played the hobby. You right. wish, frankly, more females played the hobby was the complaint for decades. You wish new people, you wish you weren't playing with the same four people over and over. You wish you could fill your tables. You wish there it was more socially acceptable. You wish you could talk about it in the bar. And now people are talking about in bars there's diversity at the table in a, in a real way. And the first thing you do is build giant walls and say, no, 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 you can't actually sit with us. It's just all I wanted was for you to want to sit with us. But now that you're trying to get out. I would, uh, I would, I think my, some of my experiences would suggest, though, that the people who are building those walls, they think they're doing the opposite. They think they're being encouraging. That's their version of social skills. You know, I'll talk to you about minutiae and then you'll all my and then you will find that impressive. And because you find it impressive, you want to spend more time with me. There there is that, and certainly I know I know players like that, mm. but I think you can tell when someone is it just comes from a place of extreme enthusiasm mm. and wanting to include someone. You know, uh, I, I know people who will like in the breaks walk up to other players and be like, here's a really cool thing you can do in three levels. And they're kind of, they're kind of like, I really just want chips. Um, but, you know, but, but that is like, it's, it, it genuinely does come from an inclusive place. And that's not what I'm discussing at all. Mm. Um, there are people should think about, you know, if you, you should always sort of be self-auditing how you come off. Uh, not me, obviously. I'm <laughs> flawless. Beyond reproach. But, but everybody else should, should, you know, watch themselves. How do you find your audience then in terms of, because obviously we're on this podcast all of a certain demographic group or, or thereabouts. So when you go onto Reddit and ask for players and you get your 47 people responding every time, like, is it, are you seeing a better mix? What sort of responses do you get off Reddit in terms of players? Well, 
Uh, I mean, firstly, you do get a mix. I think it's still, uh, at least on Reddit LFG, I'd say it still skews more male than female, but you will get a range of, of applications from both genders. Um, I frankly don't ask what race people are and we play with webcams off. So I frankly have no idea um, if I'm playing with people of colour. Um, just before we go any further, can you just tell me what colour you are? That's a great opener, isn't it, <laughs> for getting people at your table? Because I'll just check it. It's just an audit. <laughs> I don't mind. That's, that's what you tell me first. Are you brown? I need to know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm white because I have a fake job, but <laughs> and I keep failing upward. But tell me about you. No, that's, well, that's that's another oddity. I think. Well, for me, I I I'd find it hard to play voice-only games, I'd find that a bit strange. Like, I much prefer having seen the faces of people I'm playing with. I play with an American time zone group, and so we start at 10 o'clock Swiss time, and we finish at 2 a.m. So I don't want the camera off because by hour three and a half, I no longer look necessarily fully human, um, and I may have, like, you know, I may have started drooping. Um, but, yeah... Uh, it's, it is harder because sometimes you don't get those visual cues. Um, but but to, to your broader question about, about Reddit, um, one thing that I think helps is I sort of signal very clearly what kind of game I want when I advertise for players. If you whack your pronouns in your self-description, explain the kind of session zero you're going to have, explain the kind of topics that are off-limits, you're going to filter out a lot of the people that you don't want to play with, is my sense, because basically I don't want to play with anybody who has an issue with red cards at the table, for example. Mm -hmm. I don't want to play with anybody who thinks that it is impossible to run a game unless sexual assault is an option, because <laughs> Jesus Christ. like, Yeah, yeah. Uh, we all know those people. I had to recruit for a game recently, and on a whim, I put in the in the in the pitch no wankers. It was surprisingly effective. It really was. <laughs> I mean, I, I, did, I, did you get no applications? Oh, loads of applications, <laughs> and people said, oh, "I'm so glad you put that." It's like, did I have to put that? What? <laughs> I thought it was wasted tweet, but no, it, it really was. What game are you recruiting for? Oh, it's not, not one you're in, mate, because it would have been filtered. You see, by the. <laughs> I'm putting two and two together here. <laughs> Flipping the, the negotiator idea on its head, is there anything you kind of picked up from that sort of world and having to interact with people in, in various ways and uh, change your approach that you can bring in to DMing or our NPCs act? To give an example of the sort of thing I'm talking about, in um, a game of Blue Planet, which is kind of futuristic and in an ocean world and it's a bit sci fi, but had a sort of pseudo-Russian crime boss who acts very aggressively. And I played the scenario like three or four times. And the first three times, he acts aggressively. And all the players who were, were all male immediately got oozies out and wanted to fight or tried to, you know, attack him because that's just the way it is. And I played for my mate and his girlfriend and a couple of others. And uh, Claire, who it was, just like immediately when that situation happened, just started trying to de-escalate. And like, so, well, what can I do for you? What you seem very angry. Like, is there something we can do to help? Yeah, and just like completely like turn the the situation around. So it was interesting seeing. I'm not saying it's because she was female. I think it's because she was a new player, and when confronted with someone who was angry, wanted to understand that anger and like do something for them to try and 
change the situation while still like resolving the encounter that they had to do like are there any things like that or any of the stories you might have about things you think you can do from the way you treat people to talk to each other that can make either that the players approach better or perhaps make npcs more interesting because it's always gratifying when a villain starts to tell the story in some way and the players go oh, that's fair enough actually and then they have to think about whether they do want to take them down or not that kind of thing so so firstly i think kind of negotiation and that entire really the entire world of policy real can really help your world building in a sense that you know public policy generally is basically like I have a limited number of levers that I can apply pressure to in one direction or the other. And what I'm trying to do is shape outcomes. But very rarely does the like lever directly make people do what I want. If I increase taxes on alcohol, does that make people buy less alcohol? Does it shift their alcohol consumption pattern? Does it push them into barbiturates? Does it, like, what's the effect? You you can push one pebble, but you don't know where the kind of dominoes will fall. But you, so you have to start thinking about the interconnection of a whole bunch of different systems. And you go like, okay, well, what happens if this, you know, okay, so uh, in my world, this gold mine has just been filled with, with, I don't know, killer spy, phase spiders who are now murdering the miners. Right, okay, what does that do to the village? You've now cut off the village's main sense of income. What does that do to the village? How does the local lord respond? How, like, you, you basically have to, and it really, having a policy background in some ways helps you do that kind of, like, impact analysis in your head and build worlds that breathe a little bit more. The, the absolute best example for people who want to write like this is read the Expanse novels by the James A. Corey duo, mm-hmm. which is basically the entire series, for those who are unfamiliar with it, it's also now an Amazon, Netflix and Amazon show, is basically they've modeled this, the solar system in the near future. There's sort of three different factions, and then something happens that just kicks everything off, and it's alien, but... For like the first four books, the alien thing doesn't do anything. It sets the balance of power in one specific way that then, and then what follows is fascinating explorations of how humans in different sort of societies under different pressures would politically and interpersonally respond to that changing dynamic. It's absolutely brilliant as a piece of political science fiction rather than just science i mean it's great science fiction too but it's political science fiction yeah i mean that that alien tech is is almost a MacGuffin, isn't it for the first couple of seasons at least yeah uh, uh for the, i mean and then actually in my personal opinion the books get worse the the more alien stuff is in it right that's that's where it gets kind of less interesting it's it's all about the the kind of politics of the factions I will tell an interesting uh, Gaz, I run this, uh, one of the training courses I run uh, includes a simulation where I basically teach people how to draft legal text in a negotiation. Um, So basically what I do is in a scenario, I take a paragraph from an existing trade agreement. I don't tell them I do this, but I take one from the Canada EU trade agreement and I butcher it and I break the legal language in a way that makes it deeply, deeply problematic. Like, I make it so that if you plain face reading it, like, nobody's allowed to trade ever, 
and also everyone's going to jail. And so I basically explain to people that, that their goal is to turn this into a paragraph that does what it's supposed to do, which is on like, I think, environmental regulation. And they, they should like look at it and work out where all the errors are and draft a new one. And on one particular day, I ran this, these courses back to back on one day with two cohorts of UK government civil servants in this case. And the first cohort was 39 men and one woman who I think left halfway through. So by the time we got to this negotiation, it was 39 men. And they drafted it from scratch. They were like arguing over language. Next cohort comes in much more 50-50. So the exercise starts up. I start walking around. Like three different women at three different tables have opened up laptops. I'm like, what are you doing? And she's like, well, we're looking at other free trade agreements that have language on the environment because obviously two governments signed up on that. So we want to find language that does what it's meant to do. And we're just going to kind of basically use that and, and, and draw from that. Uh, and you're sort of sitting there going like, okay, this is why we have multiple perceptions. And I think you get the exact same thing, as you said, in a party, which is just you get a variety of different reactions to different things and you get a whole different variety of the way that people approach problems and the things they get out of D&D. And often when you do that, people discover that the thing that they thought they liked about D&D isn't the only thing they like about D&D. You'll have people who thought they were just there for the hardcore hack and slash suddenly find that they're really getting into the like little no majors quest to find the perfect mushroom because i think like if you think about it at the end of the day you're not really fighting anything right you're you're you have a set of challenges and you have a set of rules to overcome them and at the end of the day the difference fundamentally between rolling a perception check and rolling a broadsword attack it there is not i mean it's but it's just for some reason you know people feel like they can only enjoy the broadsword and but actually having a more diverse group where somebody's like actually i want to do this other thing like actually that was super fun and that was more fun than you know as my min-max barbarian getting to roll 2d20s every round and brutalizing something yeah i mean J- justin alexander talks about stuff like this um where he, he he has a blog called the alexandrian um which is definitely recommended if if you haven't read it but uh he he bemoans the fact that the Wizards of the Coast being, you know, the biggest dog on the block, don't take enough responsibility to teach players um, how to play and GMs how to run things like a dungeon crawl or a hex crawl or a point crawl or, or an investigation or a social scene. And what you'll find is, is, is the, the thing that's missing from almost every situation where a game feels like it's gone awry is the players don't know what their goal is. And the minute you roll initiative, everyone is now back on message. We know what our goal is, and now we feel much more happy. That's why rolling your broadsword attack is so much more comfortable for a mm. player because a player knows, I know exactly why I'm doing this. I know precisely what I want to happen, and I can now measure my happiness against the result. With a perception check, you're in this kind of amorphous, massive, I don't quite know why I'm doing this, what I'm hoping to achieve, and... And that, that lack of kind of goal really starts to sort of shape your, your experience. 
So it's interesting to kind of hear, hear you say that. But yeah, Justin Alexander talks about it quite a bit. Um, I was going to ask you a quick question because um, I've, I've made notes of, of, of everything that you've, you've said, the, those kind of key points. Um, and one of the ones that stands out to me is um, talking about breaking down the, the, the roles of adversary, you know, player versus GM or um, however you want to frame it. What, if you had to kind of describe your sort of, you know, top three techniques of breaking down these roles, what, what would that look like? From a from a DM DM player perspective, yeah, yeah, yeah. So so one thing is you've definitely got to at least pretend to be excited about the way that they do things. So when they've, um, you've got to project an air of enthusiasm when they use their skills and their abilities, and when they when they murder something. Mm. You know, like, Matt, it's cliche as hell, but Matt Mercer's how do you want to do this? Mm. Um, that kind of puts the narration into the hands of the player for half a second and lets Matt get excited about the way that they are describing killing the big bad mm. and kind of breaks that thing down where he's where he almost kind of hands over the serum for half a second in order to, for a moment, be a passenger right there along with all the other players as Beauregard snaps the neck off the, the demon or whatever. Right. So, so, is, so be a fan of the players is, is what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, this this is the thing. Like, you, it, it's it's like, can you imagine, like, if the guys who wrote the, I don't know, the Book of Malazan hated all of their characters? Like, uh, or, 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 you know, if J.K. Rowling and hated Harry Potter, like, how tedious and how tedious you would have found the fact that ultimately... You're in most cases, you're crafting a story where the players are going to win. I mean, you know, there's exceptions to that, and I tend to kind of, uh, but, but, and, and you can play that in different ways, and you shouldn't reward stupidity. But generally speaking, most D&D games, your players should broadly succeed at at least their narrowly defined goals. If your players are getting murdered in the first encounter every time you play, Probably not going to, I mean, um, uh, again, unless we're going back to, to Baz's, like, Chains and Silk Rope and you're playing with a bunch of masochists, uh, which, you know, more power to you with no king shape here. But uh, with most cases, that's not that fun for anybody, right? So you've got to be a fan of your, play, of your, of your player's characters and be like, I want to see what this person does next. And you have to kind of force yourself to do that. And a lot of that's about working with them on character creation. If they've created someone you can't get excited about or you can't even like love hate sometimes someone will create a lot of my characters that i play for other people's games are slightly love hate characters um you know, i've played an, an insufferable uh, an insufferably unself-aware bard that kept thinking the the urchin thief was like a street urchin in our party and a new one each time and kept handing her gold pieces because he thought there was, he was handing out arms to charity. And he was insufferable, but he was at least kind of lovably insufferable, I hope. Hmm. Nicole, please don't have me. But so, you, so you've got to do that. You've got to be fans of your characters. I think that's a really good way of putting it. Hmm. I think you have to mentally drill yourself out of designing one solution to a problem as you're building the dungeon. So if you have a dungeon 
and you are like, I have built a trap or an encounter. If when you build it, you find that you are like, right, there is a right way to do this. And you find yourself becoming emotionally invested in the right way to do this. That is setting yourself up to feel resentment and uh, adversarial reality when inevitably the players break it. Mm. Uh, inevitably the players find some other way to do it, which is actually the whole point of D&D. Like you play D&D so you can move outside the hexes, right? If you if you didn't want, you play like Warhammer Quest, which is a perfectly way to pass the time. But if you're playing D&D, the whole point is they can do the thing you don't expect. So when you're designing a thing, you can have like an idea or three about how to solve it. But if you find yourself being like, I can't wait until they turn this sequence of knobs in that order and that's what will bring me joy you, you're going to find yourself forcing finding yourself in an adversarial situation mm. and the last thing is and this i guess circles back to to the being being fans of your characters it's about giving them epic moments not about giving you epic moments the epic moments you give yourself, I mean, sure, as a trait, go on, but they are there to either demonstrate stakes to the players or sort of demonstrate power differentials or make their moments of awesome feel more epic. But if you find that, you know, the, the, that you've got, uh, you, you've fallen into a pattern where you've got encounter after encounter where the player's actions are uh, because you can't wait until you're, vampire assassin can break through the window and kill four of their enemies in one round because you're that because that's like your avatar in the game and that's your power fantasy that you're doing that kind of thing you you begin to they become peripheral to your story and you begin to feel adversarial about them because you begin to feel like they're stealing the spotlight from Dell, the vampire fighter mage assassin sorcerer monk level 47 that you have created yeah it's funny you kind of yeah you, you pick up on that because that's um well i mean that's something you see quite often with a lot of the um the, the the campaign books that wizards come out with almost all of the books have at least half a dozen gm pcs who are basically characters for the gm to play they are there to fix any plot holes, but also for the GM to kind of go, and here's the answer to the thing. And it's like, you know, it's like the, the little floating elephant demon thing when you're going into Avernus, it, whose only job is to, is to basically spoil the story in parts as you move through the adventure. It's just like you're not giving the player a chance to work it out for themselves and feel smart and, and a reward for all the legwork really isn't a talking elephant giving them the answer. It's really interesting when you read books where it's very clear that the author wrote, for example, the first book as a massive power fantasy for themselves. Right. And so ended up with a character that is like unstoppably awesome, invulnerable and all powerful. And then they've turned it into a series or they'd always planned to write a series, they didn't plan it that well. And then so the start of books two, three, four and five have to be increasingly elaborate and contrived reasons why the character can't just solve everything. <laughs> and, and so the same thing can happen with, the, with, with Dungeons and Dragons, right? Where you do have to, in the Dungeons and Dragons universe, you often do have these immeasurably powerful 
beings wandering around. And as a DM, it can be tempting to introduce them into your campaign so that you do get to be Elminster because it's like an awesome power trip to be like, I'm Elminster, fill my wrath. But as soon as you do that, the players are going to be like, well, we're level two. Right. Elminster's here. And he's telling us we have to go and retrieve the MacGuffin from the temple. Just teleport in there, kill everyone, and pick it up, you lazy redhead bastard. <laughs> Stupid Elminster. If the players constantly feel like whenever they get in trouble, that, that really every scene is just you waiting to bail them out. Um, they're like, well, at this point, we may as well walk up to the BBG and level two and punch him in the neck and just wait for you to show up and rescue Wait, Wait, wait for the deus ex machina to happen exactly. and off you go. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd, just anecdotally, one um, uh, having more than one solution, I'm actually a huge fan of uh, creating a situation uh, to which I have no idea what the solution is and then letting the players just work it out and whatever they come up with is clearly the most cool thing to them. So it becomes the most cool thing to me. So I actually have no preconceptions for half of the crazy shenanigans I put my players through. So, yeah, that's good. That's good to hear. It's the way forward. Right, gents, I am conscious of time and we've uh, we've certainly covered an hour there. So it's been great having you on, Dimitri. I might have to get you back at some point with uh, more Tales of Glory from Reddit. Thanks ever so much, guys. Absolutely lovely, guys. So if people want to find you, uh, just to, to at you with things about D&D? Oh, they should jump on Twitter and just yell straight at me. I would love anything that's not Brexit-related. I look forward to many people out talking about their trade disputes they're having in Greyhawk. And coming to you, wanting to know how Fandelver can get more. My, my players make fun of me that every campaign I run inevitably involves, like as a pivotal side plot, some disruption to trading caravans. <laughs> I'm just going to really want to explore what happens to the supply chain here, guys. Come on. Why aren't you, aren't you as excited about disruption to the iron ore supply as I am? What will this do to market? I look forward to that coming through to most people's games in the UK in the coming months and weeks. So thanks very much for having you on, and uh, we shall see you all next time on What Would the Smart Party Do? Good night. Good night.